cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 2nd, 2011. And the debate continues as a result of Rob Bell's marketing techniques. What does the afterlife hold for people? Is hell real? We'll talk about that here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You can trust God's Word. Other people who are just opining, giving their opinions and their speculations and, and their theological-slash-philosophical musings, yeah, um, all of that gets to be tested against God's Word. And if they contradict what God's Word teaches, they're wrong. They're not God. And their little puny human intellect is not capable of figuring out what God hasn't revealed. And if God has revealed something— They can be as clever as they want, but it's not clever. It's just foolish to think that you're smarter than God and that you know better how things run or how the universe ought to run better than what God has revealed in his word. Today, uh, we're going to um, do our light edition of Fighting for the Faith, but that does not mean this is going to be a short edition. This is going to be quite a long edition today. This is going to be part one of a two-part series uh, of teachings that I'm going to uh, be presenting on the Doctrine of Hell, a series of lectures uh, delivered by a, uh, a, a Presbyterian minister, Ted Donnelly, uh, from Northern Ireland. And he uh, came to the United States and uh, did a, a series of four lectures on the Doctrine of Hell to a group of uh, Reformed Baptists. And uh, this was a number of years ago, but they are very well done and worth listening to. And I want to pass them along because here's the deal. I'm not going to let Rob Bell set the agenda. We've got, you know, almost a month before his book comes out. And I'm not going to sit here and allow him and his false teaching and his speculations and his emergent deconstructed questions set the agenda. Jesus Christ is the one who sets the agenda because when you read the scriptures, you find out that Jesus Christ really is the one who revealed 
the doctrine of hell in the clarity that we have today. And uh, some have uh, likened him to be the uh, theologian of hell, if you would, and that's the truth. And um, Pastor Donnelly, uh, the Reverend Donnelly, is going to do a fantastic job of explaining all of that. He uh, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about because he has a good, thick uh, Irish accent, uh, but uh, on top of it, the presentation that he gives is solid. It's absolutely solid. So what we're going to do today is we're going to listen to the first two lectures, and uh, we'll listen to lecture one, take a break, come back, uh, and then listen to lecture number two. It is all presented here with the idea that let's just get the truth out. Let's take a look at what the Bible says and why this is important. And in lecture number two, uh, lecture number one, he uh, basically kind of lays out why it's important for us to uh, look at this doctrine. Lecture number two, he starts uh, the process of delving into the biblical teaching on it, as well as uh, taking care of some of the tougher questions regarding hell. Would a loving God send people to hell? Is it contrary to God's nature? Things of that nature. So he, uh, he, he addresses that in lecture number two. This is a long haul. Uh, this is a serious topic and uh, one that uh, um, I really do hope that you will be edified by because what Pastor Donnelly is putting forth here is what the Scriptures reveal regarding the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God. Here is Ted Donnelly. My dear friends, it is indeed a very great pleasure and privilege for me to be back here in Dayton for your family conference. Uh, This evening earlier, uh, I found it hard to believe that seven years had passed uh, since I last had the privilege uh, of being with you. But when I was standing beside Pastor Fortner a moment ago singing, I realized that I couldn't read the words of uh, these songs without my glasses. I didn't have that problem seven years ago. Uh, So the passage of time uh, is taking its its toll. I've always said that I never enjoyed a conference more uh, than the last time I was with you. And I'm enormously grateful uh, for the invitation uh, to return. Uh, My pleasure at being with you and at the prospect of renewing old friendships and making new ones, has been heightened uh, by the presence of my wife with me, whom I hope many of you will have an opportunity of meeting. Uh, She has kindly been invited uh, by our hosts. Uh, And another great plus of the visit was the opportunity to spend the weekend in Mebane and to develop fellowship with the people of God in that place. I look forward to the whole of the conference. I look forward with enormous pleasure to the prospect of ministry from Pastors Hendricks and Pizzino each morning and to fellowship with you all. The subject allotted to me for this conference was the doctrine of hell. And I plan to approach that subject on the four evenings uh, topically or thematically. I trust our studies will be exegetical, but we shall not be focusing in on a particular passage each evening. Rather, I want to approach the subject by means of four questions. And the first one this evening is, 
Why should we think about hell? Why should we think about hell? It is uh, an extremely unpleasant subject. One writer has described it as the ultimate horror of God's universe. And you, of course, are here for a, fa- for a holiday conference. You're here to relax, to be refreshed, to enjoy yourselves. A few weeks ago, a friend was asking me, well, perhaps he wasn't just as close a friend as I imagined, but he was asking me uh, where I was going and who I was speaking for, and, and he said, what is your topic? And I said, I've been asked to, to speak four times on the doctrine of hell. And he said, isn't that absolutely typical of Reformed Baptists? (laughs) When they meet together for a relaxing, enjoyable holiday, what subject do they choose to consider together but the topic of hell? What a morbid people they must be. Why should we think about hell? And perhaps we are put off the subject further by the way throughout history that Christians zealously but unwisely have caricatured and distorted and misrepresented the biblical doctrine. Let me give you some quotations. One preacher speaks of the wicked hanging by their tongues from hooks while the flaming fire torments them from beneath. Another says of someone in hell, the flames of fire gushed from his ears and eyes and nostrils and out of every pore. Another describes the damned eating each other, tearing each other with their teeth. One preacher, and I quote, sounds almost gloating or joyful about hell. He says, the little child is in this red hot oven. It beats its little head against the roof of the oven and stamps its little feet on the floor. Hear how it screams to come out. See how it turns and twists itself in the fire. Now much of those statements go far beyond the sober, measured, restrained statements of Scripture. They owe more to a vivid imagination than to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. They are crude. They are inaccurate. They are unbiblical. And they have brought the whole subject into disrepute. And we have a reluctance to to be classed with that sort of representation of the doctrine of hell. And then there's a personal reluctance in dealing with the doctrine. A friend who I esteem highly warned me before I began to study. And he said, this study will cost you It will mark you. 
it will be a burden upon you. And I have to say that it has. And at times I've sometimes thought of my friends in Mebane and said to myself, why did they assign me such a topic? There are so many truths in Scripture which thrill us and excite us, and as we think about them we're filled with joy and gladness, and we're moved to worship and gratitude over these glorious truths. It is a joy to study them and to prepare them. It is a foretaste of heaven. But to sit and to ponder on the fate of the damned brings a heaviness on the spirit. And in my human weakness, I want to be liked. I want to be popular. I want you to to think of me with gratitude as a friend. And there is that in my flesh that was saying, but these people will not remember my messages with anything but a sense of, of dread. How I wish I could speak on something else. Such a somber and terrible theme. And so I've asked myself this question, why should we think about hell? And we all need to ask it. If we're going to spend four evenings studying it, we need to be convinced, convinced in our hearts and souls that it is mandatory that we should study it. That it is of the utmost importance for our souls and the souls of a generation to come. That this is a key doctrine which we cannot and dare not neglect. And only if we do so will we come with appropriate seriousness and expectation. Why should we think about hell? I want to suggest three reasons this evening. We should think about hell in the first place because of its intrinsic importance. Its intrinsic importance. Now, of course, everything in the Bible is important. But it is nonetheless true that there are some truths which have proportionately a greater and more vital importance than others. If we are ignorant of the fine points of the doctrine of angels, or of some of the details of the Old Testament food laws, we will be the poorer. That is to be regretted, but we will not be damned. We will not be lost. We will survive. Other doctrines, however, are indispensable. In his great book, The Reformed Pastor, Richard Baxter urges pastors to preach on these doctrines more than others. He says, other things may be known. But these must be known, or else men are undone forever. And hell is such a doctrine. It must be known. Let me adduce four lines of evidence to emphasize its intrinsic 
importance. The first is the massive weight of biblical testimony. The massive weight of biblical testimony. Hell is not something that is referred to occasionally, now and then, here and there, in one or two obscure, disputed passages of Scripture. No. Huge sections of the Word of God bear on this doctrine. There are more references in the Bible to the wrath of God than to the love of God. The Old Testament is full in every book of our Lord's fierce judgment on his enemies, foreshadowings of hell. Our Lord Jesus Christ had far more to say about hell than he did about heaven. That surprises some people, but it's true. One scholar says that there are approximately 1,870 verses in the New Testament which record words of Christ. 13% of these deal with judgment and hell. For an eighth of what he says, he speaks of judgment and hell more than any other topic. The key word for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. And on every single occasion except one, that word is spoken by Jesus. The one exception is James chapter 3 verse 6 with reference to the tongue. We call him the Savior. And even that very blessed name draws attention to the dreadful fate from which he saves us. There is a massive weight of biblical testimony. Now, my friends, if God has chosen in his wisdom to provide us in his holy word with so much information about hell, is it not patently obvious that it is something which is hugely important? And that alone would be reason enough for studying it. We cannot neglect it if the Holy Spirit has given us such a weight of information about it. But then secondly, it's intrinsically important, not only because of the proportion of Scripture given to the doctrine, but to the actual content of the doctrine itself. It tells us of a place of torment where millions of human beings will be enclosed forever. I'm told that 95 million human beings die every year. I haven't checked the math of this, so please don't correct me, but I think it's approximately right. That means that every second, three human beings are entering hell or heaven. 
By the time I have finished this address, 11,000 of our fellow human beings will have gone forever to a place of everlasting joy or a place of everlasting torment. And as you sit here, imagine them dying even now as I speak. One and another and another and another and every time my hand falls, another human being, think of it, another human being is entering heaven or hell forever. If there had been a plane crash this morning, if two or three hundred people had suddenly been snatched into eternity, we'd all be talking about it this evening. We'd be grief-stricken. Our minds would be full of it. We could think of nothing else. And yet 11,000 of our fellow human beings, every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, are entering their eternal destination. Surely this is a reason why such a doctrine is intrinsically important. And thirdly, it's important because we are not remote from this catastrophe. I remember the phrase of Sam Waldron and something he wrote where he said, death is not a spectator sport. When we're at a spectator sport, we're not involved. We don't feel involved. We're indifferent. It doesn't touch us. I'm looking forward with immense interest and eagerness to the volleyball match on Wednesday evening between the elders and the deacons. And I will be able to see just how sanctified some of my fellow elders are. And I do so with a greater pleasure because I know that nothing on earth would persuade me to stand on that volleyball court and participate. I will be a spectator. I am not involved. I, I say that officially now. <laughs> we feel uninvolved. It doesn't really matter what happens. It doesn't concern us. But friends, that is not true of this doctrine. For every one of us in this room, by nature, is headed to that very place. It is not something that doesn't concern us. We have all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and it is appointed for men to die once, and after death, the judgment. Every one of us is intimately involved. Some of you may think that there are some Bible doctrines that don't involve you. You would be unwise to think that, but you may think that nonetheless. Some of you who are not parents may feel that the biblical instruction to parents is of no immediate concern to you. Some of you who are not employers may skip lightly over the teaching of the word of God to employers or to the rich 
or to so on. Now, that would be a mistake on your part, but it would be understandable. You would say, well, it's interesting, it's true, but it doesn't immediately concern me. But none of us, none of us can ever dare to say that of the doctrine of hell. It is the certain destiny of every unsaved sinner. And we are born sinners. And then fourthly and lastly, it is intrinsically important, not only because of the massive weight of biblical testimony, the content of the doctrine, the way in which we are involved in it, but because there is only one way of escape from hell. It is not the case that there is a whole range of options open to us. Various possibilities to lessen our anxiety. All sorts of categories of people who won't go there. We can't say to ourselves, well, hell is dreadful. Hell is a reality. But after all, there are many, many ways of avoiding hell. So I don't need to be unduly concerned. The scripture is clear. Only one way through faith in Jesus Christ. He who does not believe the Son, says the Savior, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Everyone else is damned. If you do not believe on Christ as your Savior, you are damned. You are headed straight for hell. Why should we think about hell? Because we're going there unless we find the one way of escape. So here is our answer to those who would speak of those morbid people who at a holiday conference think about hell. And I would say to them, would you bring that same charge against a conference of physicians who met to discuss cancer? Would you say, what a morbid group, what an unhealthy type of men they must be. They meet together and all they can discuss is, is the sickness we wouldn't say that, would we? We would be thankful that there were men who were studying it. We would be grateful that there were people who were giving their skill and their insight and their knowledge to dealing with this dreadful reality, that they might help us, that they might bring us healing, that they might be a blessing to us. We would thank God for those people who were studying that disease. We would pray that they would be helped and blessed. And we would say they're not studying cancer because they like to, but because it is a reality. Thank God for men and women who are honest enough to face reality. But hell is a reality, a dreadful reality. And the most positive, the most loving, the most responsible thing that we can do is to study that doctrine that we may be used to deliver men and women from that dreadful place. That is our reason and our purpose. It's intrinsic 
importance. Got to pause right there. Exactly. We need to study this doctrine because this is exactly what our great God and Savior Jesus Christ said regarding the afterlife. And Jesus was no liar. Preaching the gospel is about snatching people from the fires of hell. Yep, this isn't morbid. This is essential. Why should we think about hell? The second reason. Because of the pervasiveness of unbelief about hell. Because of the pervasiveness of unbelief. If hell was something which was universally accepted, which all people believed and agreed on, something on which everyone was accurately informed, if everyone knew about hell and believed in hell, then we mightn't need to spend so much time studying it together. But the truth of the matter is that in our generation, belief in hell has declined almost to the point of disappearance. Let me just very briefly illustrate that on three levels, three levels of unbelief. There's first of all what we might call popular mockery. Popular mockery. Some time ago, I think it must have been about ten years ago, uh, my wife and I attended the Christmas pageant in the local school. And all the children were doing little skits and plays. Quite a pleasant evening, until to our horror, a number of children appeared on the stage dressed as devils. Their mothers had made uh, paper horns and tails, and they, they circled round the platform and they sang a song about hell, where people frizzled and fried. This was children, and the audience laughed uproariously at the humor of the thing. And we sat with our flesh crawling with horror. And we could almost hear the words of Christ, Whoever offends one of these little ones, it were better that a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the depths of the sea. Hell is a joke. We all know how heaven and hell are themes in advertising, whether it be a candy bar or a perfume or anything else. This very day, as we crossed the border into Tennessee, we stopped at the visitor center with friends. My wife picked up this advertisement for a restaurant. It's in a building which used to be a church. has now become an eating place. Uh, the brochure begins regarding the food so heavenly. It must be sinful. Our chef uses the freshest ingredients available to produce soul-satisfying cuisine. Just as Eve tempted Adam, we're going to tempt you with today's des dessert creations. Imagine our devilish chocolate ecstasy, and so on. And then it ends. Good cheer and God bless.
It's a joke. I, I'll not pollute your ears with, with further examples. There are many of them. We've no wish, wish to repeat these blasphemies. But people regard hell as a joke. Hellfire preachers are a figure of fun. And people who believe in hell are either laughed at or pitied. You know that for yourselves. It's a matter of popular mockery. Secondly, it's a matter of serious unbelief. Serious unbelief. We must not underestimate the degree to which some unbelievers do think seriously. They're dead, yes. They're blind, yes. They hate God, yes. Their thinking is distorted, yes. But they are serious people. They do reflect deeply on important issues. They're wrong. But they do think, and it is a simple fact, that to many 20th century people, the idea of hell is morally disgusting. To them, it is a primitive superstition. They are genuinely offended by it. They think of it as a crude bogeyman used by a tyrant church to terrify and manipulate simple, uneducated people. The philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote, I do not myself feel that any person who is profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. It is a doctrine that put cruelty into the world and gave the world generations of torture. And we need to realize that many of the people we live among and work with and meet on a daily basis will despise us for believing in hell. That's true. I say that to you young people as you go out into the intellectual world of the university and the workplace. It's also true of the so-called new intellectuals in the emergent church movement and so-called evangelicals. Face up to the fact that intelligent people whom you meet and work with and know will think your belief in hell contemptible or wicked. We'll see later why they think this way. There is serious unbelief. But then thirdly, as we think of pervasive unbelief, there is most tragically and surprisingly of all, what we might call evangelical questioning. And by this I mean those who profess to be born again, those who profess belief in Christ as Savior, and in many cases may have belief in Christ as Savior. I do not wish to pass judgment on the, on the spiritual condition of these men. For a long time the liberals have disbelieved hell. We expect that. But what has happened in our generation is that many leading evangelicals have begun to question, and worse than question, that doctrine which was the unanimous faith of the church for over 1,800 years. And in many leading 
evangelical centers of influence, you will find now not the orthodox teaching of hell, but the teaching of what is called annihilationism or conditional immortality. The belief that God at some stage will simply allow the wicked to pass into nothingness. And certainly in the United Kingdom, I don't know the position here, that belief is on the verge of becoming the majority belief among evangelicals. Men as eminent as John Stott, a man who has written so wisely and helpfully on many topics, Stott has gone on record as dissenting from the doctrine, the orthodox doctrine of hell. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, once a friend of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the author of a marvelous commentary on Hebrews, has come out very strongly against the doctrine of eternal punishment. Other writers suggest what they call post-mortem evangelism. The idea that somehow after death there will be another chance or a first chance for those who did not hear the gospel during their lifetime. Clark Pinnock has moved to what he calls inclusivism. The belief that God will forgive and receive to himself followers of other religions if they have lived up to the light which they have received. A good Buddhist will go to heaven. A good member of Islam will go to heaven if they have been faithful. They thought, you thought you could trust them and depend on them. And then you find out they were using you. They never left you. They laughed at you behind their back, your back. They took what they could get and they sneered at you. That's what people are doing with God. That's how they think they can treat the God of heaven and earth. No holiness, no majesty, no awesomeness. He's a little puppet who stays on a box until we press the switch to let him out. But friends, the doctrine of hell confronts us with a God who is far, far different. A God who is overwhelming in his anger, terrifying in his power, awesome in his justice, a mighty sovereign who holds the whole earth in his hand like a pinch of dust, high as the heavens above the earth. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Hell speaks to us of, of a God who is terrifying, a God who is sovereign, a God who is uncontrollable, a God who takes us and does with us as he pleases, a God whom we can't manipulate or ignore or marginalize or use. Who wants a God like that? People today don't want him. And they will banish any doctrine which brings him frighteningly before us. And that is why it is so vital that we think seriously about hell. 
because it brings us everyone face to face with the living God. And it is a litmus test for our souls. Am I God-centered? Or am I man-centered? Hell will test you. Hell will test you. And I believe there will be no belief in hell until there's recovery of a belief in God. And I believe, although I won't take time to expand on it now, that that is why our Reformed churches are so, so vital. Who will tell of the great God? Who will tell of the great God? People must hear. Until they hear of this God. They'll not believe in hell. I don't think you could teach the doctrine as an isolated thing on its own. You have to see God. You have to understand God. His holiness. His majesty. His power. His infinity. Hell doesn't make sense until you see God. You can't grasp it. You can't get hold of it. But once you see God, once you're confronted by God, the living God, the true God, once you and I gaze into the face of that holy, majestic, powerful being, then we are ready to understand, to believe all that God says. When the day of judgment comes, no one will be laughing. No one will be producing little flippant brochures about heaven and hell. No one will be questioning the morality of eternal punishment. No broad-minded preachers will be saying, I don't believe a God of love could send anyone to hell. We'll all be in our faces. We'll all be in our faces. We'll be overwhelmed before the majesty, the intense reality of the living and true God. And that's why this week I've decided not to spend time refuting the errors of these men. I hope you're not disappointed by that. At first I was going to. And then I thought, why should we let these men set our agenda? Why should we spend time answering their silly little objections when we know that that's not the real problem? The real problem is they haven't seen God. They don't know God. Why should we think about hell? Because it brings us face to face with the overwhelming reality of God. God. That's our greatest need. That's why the devil has attacked this doctrine so persistently. Some of you here tonight are unconverted. You need to meet God. We're not playing games here. We're not spinning words. You need to face up to the reality of the God who made you. The God who gives you breath as you sit here. The God against whom you have sinned. The God to whom you are accountable. The God who will judge you. The God who will condemn you Certainly, if you do not cry for mercy to his son. 
Some of us as believers have been influenced by the world, become man-centered. The vision of God has become dim. And our view of Christianity is becoming a little bit selfish. We've come to this conference thinking, what's in it for me? What will I enjoy? What practical lessons will I learn? There's nothing wrong with that. But more than anything else, we need as believers, again, to meet our God in his glory and in his majesty. May he use this doctrine to bring it before us. Some of you dear saints have a sorrow deeper than tears for loved ones who are now gone from this earth with as far as you know no interest in Christ. And they were bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, and you loved them. And you were right to love them. And the thought that they are now lost, that they are now damned, is unbearably painful to you. I cannot comfort you. But I can bring you to God by his grace and strength. I know that if you will come into his presence with your tears and your questions and your anguish, then he'll put his father's arms around you and he'll hold you and he'll comfort you. You may not have the answers, but you'll feel around you the God of love who does all things well, whose ways are all righteousness and truth, who cannot hurt any of his children, but who is to be praised and honored in all that he does. And you will be comforted. Remember the words of the redeemed in heaven. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for your judgments have been manifested. That's the only answer to our hearts. To see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. Let us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we are terribly afraid of this truth. It scares us. It overwhelms us. To my own ears, my voice has been like the babbling of a little child on the surface of things. But it is your truth. Hell is your hell. And you are our God. And you are righteous and holy.
holy and perfect. We do not need to fear your truth if we are in Christ. Lord, we pray for any here still in their sins. Great God, touch them by your Spirit and do in them what none of us can do. Enable them to see the pit of hell over which they now stand. And there is nothing holding them up but the hand of a God who is angry with them. Lord, lead them to flee from the wrath to come. Help us, we pray, in this study and in all our meditation on your word throughout this week that you alone may be glorified through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going to play lecture number two. Love this guy's approach. He's not going to let the liberals and the skeptics, the scoffers, and those who deny what Christ has taught to set the agenda. When we come back, he'll walk us through the doctrine of hell from what the scriptures teach. That was just the warm-up. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can do so. Uh, my email address, if you'd like to contact me, is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, the way sound doctrine is decided has nothing to do with taking a poll regarding how popular a particular doctrine is. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, I want to thank you all, f- that ha- those of you who have supported us, thank you for your support. And those of you who are going to support us, thank you in advance for uh, your contribution to help us keep this important radio program going. All right, we're going to keep, uh, we're going to move along here, and this is going to be uh, lecture number two uh, by Pastor Ted Donnelly on the uh, doctrine of hell and uh, this one's uh, a quite a it's pretty long but it's important we you know here we are in the weeks leading up to the release of Rob Bell's book and by the way uh, uh, from those who've read the book and you know that I've uh, I've read their blogs and communicated with Rob Bell doesn't teach annihilationism according to them what Rob Bell teaches in his book is that hell isn't eternal that the punishment that's in hell is well temporary He's kind of turned. Uh, he's kind of turned hell into uh, purgatory with the idea that eventually everybody's going to get out and everyone's going to get restored. That's the idea here. But rather than letting Rob Bell set the agenda, let's uh, hear again from Pastor Donnelly on the doctrine of hell. Here we go. We come this evening to the second of four questions that we wish to consider together as we think of the. Bible doctrine of hell. And it is simply this. What does the Bible teach about hell? What does the Bible teach about hell? Some biblical doctrines are extremely complex. They are difficult to grasp. They are elusive, mysterious, Far beyond the reach of our minds, we think, for example, of the doctrine of the Trinity, of the three persons in the one Godhead, 
We wrestle with that doctrine, and even the mightiest human and believing intellect finds it difficult. Other doctrines are simple, in a sense. The doctrine of the atonement. Christ in the place of sinners. The Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A child can understand that. And many children have believed it to their salvation. And yet, although simple on the surface, those doctrines have such depths of profundity as to be unfathomable and to fill us with wonder and amazement. The doctrine of hell is not really in either of these categories. It is not extremely complex. It is relatively plain and straightforward. We can state it quite simply. One writer defines hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. That's plain and straightforward. Again, a child can understand that a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And this is a doctrine which is fortified even by the unregenerate human conscience. All human beings throughout history, for the vast majority, have had a sense of hell. Look at heathen religions. Islam has a hell. Buddhism has a hell. Hinduism has a hell. There seems to be something imprinted on the conscience of human beings made in the image of God that after this life there is a place of judgment and punishment for those who have done wrong. Okay, I'm going to pause there. Now, I know this sounds like a subjective argument, but in reality, he's arguing really from Romans 1, which says that we have the law, all of us have the law of God written on our hearts. If we have the law of God written on our hearts and it's sitting there accusing us, and it, it would make perfect sense in that case to basically say, along with that, the, with the law of God written on our hearts would come an understanding of the consequences of those sins that we commit daily. The doctrine is straightforward, it is easy to grasp, and it is something that in our inner being we agree with. And the fact that it is denied by so many and ignored by more is simply because it is so unwelcome, not because it's so complex or so unreasonable. In the New Testament church, the doctrine of hell seems to have been one of the ABCs which was explained and expounded to new converts. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, the writer is speaking of leaving aside the elementary principles of Christ. He says it's time we moved away from basic doctrines, from teaching for beginners. And he lists some of those teachings. The foundation, he calls them. He mentions 
the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It was a basic, fundamental truth in which every new believer was instructed. And I almost feel embarrassed uh, to take time over it tonight because it is so plain and clear and straightforward. And yet there is value in that. Because it is neglected. It is overlooked. And there is great value in clarifying our understanding. And I don't propose to give you a complete statement of the biblical doctrine of hell this evening. What I would like to do is to summarize the main truths in the biblical doctrine of hell under five propositions. And then in the remainder of the time uh, to consider several problems which people have with the biblical doctrine. So let us come first to the biblical doctrine of hell and five simple propositions which gather together uh, the main aspects of scriptural truth on this topic. The first is this. Hell is a real place created by God. Hell is a real place created by God. Many people have heard the statement of the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. No need of brimstone or gridiron. Hell is other people. That was his definition of what hell is, the suffering that comes to us by the cruelty of our fellow human beings. John Robinson, infamous a generation ago for his remarkably falsely titled book, Honest to God, writes, Life can be hell. That is really what hell is, the dark side of life. People pass through dreadful experiences and they say, I have been through hell. They describe their experiences in that way. That is not true. Hell is a real place. It is not a metaphor. It is not a symbol. It is not a picture. It is not an imaginative way to describe our sorrows or our sufferings. It is not a description of our state of mind. It is a place. It has dimensions. Spatial dimensions. We don't know where that place is in God's universe. The characteristic biblical description is outside. To be cast out. To be into outer darkness. But somewhere, somewhere in God's universe there is a place. And that place is hell. In our Lord's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, 28, the rich man talks about this place of torment. And it's the normal Greek word for a place. Our word topography comes from it. The science of describing places. We're told that Judas Iscariot went to his own place. The same word. Hell is a place. Perhaps the most characteristic name for it in the New Testament is Gehenna, translated in our Bibles as hell. 
And that word has an interesting history. It was used of the valley of Hinnom, sometimes called Topheth, a place outside Jerusalem which had a history of horror in Israel. Centuries earlier, God's people had murdered their children in that valley. They had burned them to death in the worship of the Ammonite god Molech. It was the, the place of dread, of cruelty, of foulness, of desolation, of heart-wrenching grief, a place of desecration, a place of devilment. By the first century, it had become a rubbish dump, a garbage dump, a place where offal was burnt day and night. And in the valley of Hinnom, there was smoke, stench, worms, uncleanness, all that was hideous and horrible. And it is this term which our Lord uses to describe hell. He sees it as a suitable picture or symbol of the real place, hell. And because it's a place, it has been created by God. We're told in Revelation 4.11 that God created all things, and by his will they exist and were created. And that all things includes hell. Hell was made by God. He prepared the fire of hell for the devil and his angels. And we'll see the significance of that later. So in the first place, hell is a real place created by God. Secondly, hell is a place of punishment which is just, terrible, and everlasting. Hell is a place of punishment which is just, terrible, and everlasting. Now, is there any more idea, is there any more unpopular idea today in our society than the idea of punishment? It's anathema to modern man. There should be no punishment in the home. There should be no punishment in the school. There should be no punishment in the state. Punishment is regarded as barbaric, primitive, unworthy, immoral. People say we don't believe in punishment. And they say that not because they're humane, not because they're kind, not because they're tolerant or advanced or civilized. They say that because of a frightening dark shadow right at the back of their souls and of their consciousness. The shadow of hell. That voice which says there is punishment. There is punishment. And that idea so terrifies them that they do everything within their power to remove punishment from their world and their consciousness and their society in the hope that by so doing, somehow, because we don't punish, God won't punish. Because we don't believe in punishment, God won't believe in punishment. It's a childish pathetic ostrich mentality 
If we say it isn't so, it won't be so. If we hide our head under the bedclothes, the nightmare will go away. No punishment. But the Bible says that hell is a place of punishment. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. And if people are willing to accept punishment, isn't it interesting how they want to water it down? They will have remedial punishment. Punishment that will make people better. Now that's, that's fair enough. Punishment can be remedial. We trust that when we punish our children, it will be remedial punishment. It will teach them not to do wrong. It will bring them to a position where we don't have to punish them again. It is remedial punishment. Or there is preventative punishment. To punish one so that others will fear and avoid uh, that particular wrongdoing. But the punishment in hell is not remedial. It does not make anyone better. It is not a purgatory. It is of no benefit whatever to those who are being punished. Nor in the absolute sense is the punishment of hell preventative. Unless to the extent that now to hear of the pains of hell will turn people to Christ. In that sense, it is preventative. But when judgment has come, when the books have been opened, when the final destiny of all has been proclaimed, then the punishment of hell will not be remedial. It never was. It will not be preventative. It will be what people hate and fear above all. Retributive punishment. Punishment purely for wrongdoing's sake. Punishment inflicted on the evildoer. Not to frighten others. Not to teach the evildoer the error of his or her ways. But because it is right that they should be punished. Because it is just. Because that punishment in itself is a good and righteous thing. Without any benefit whatever accruing to the person who experiences the punishment. Our society hates and fears the idea of retributive punishment. It brings nightmares to their soul. Hell is a place of punishment. This punishment is just. It must be just. Because it's carried out by the Lord God Almighty. And his judgments are true and righteous. And without expanding on it unduly, we can see the justice of the punishment of hell, particularly in the way in which the scripture tells us that the punishment in hell will be measured precisely to each individual according to the knowledge and privileges which that individual enjoyed. In Luke 12, verse 47, the Savior says, The servant 
who knew his master's will and did not do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know shall be beaten with few stripes. All will be punished. All will be punished in hell. All will be punished justly. But all will not be punished to the same degree or to the same extent. All will deserve punishment, but some will deserve more punishment. And they will be given that more punishment, precisely measured, calculated to their deserts. Christ says, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. You remember his words in Matthew eleven twenty one when he was speaking to those towns which had heard his preaching and seen his miracles, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He said, Woe to you! It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment, than for you. All these cities will be punished, but some had more privilege. Some had more opportunity. Some had more blessing offered to them. They will be punished more severely. He speaks regarding the scribes in Mark twelve thirty-eight. The scribes who are selfish, hypocritical, greedy, and dishonest. These religious leaders who knew the Old Testament from beginning to end. He says these men will receive greater, greater condemnation. A solemn word to those of us who are teachers in the church. You remember James's advice. Don't rush, he says, into the teaching office. Greater privilege brings greater responsibility. Now we're not told how this punishment will be graded. We're not told in the Bible if God will inflict greater pain on some individuals than on others. Perhaps uh, it will be a greater awareness of opportunities neglected. Perhaps it will be a deeper remorse. Perhaps the worm of memory, a father, a mother's prayers, will be part of the torture of the damned in hell. The Bible doesn't tell us, and, and we must not speculate, but what it does tell us is that the punishment in hell will be utterly fair, just. No one will ever be able to complain. No one will ever be able to say, this is not fair, I have not deserved this, this is more than should be given to me. Hell is a place of punishment which is just. It is also terrible. We're told that it is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. Those in hell shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 14 
verses 10 and 11. It is a terrible punishment. It is not a slap on the wrist. It is something fearsome. And it is everlasting. In spite of the false claims today made about annihilation, the scripture is abundantly plain. We're told about everlasting destruction, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. The same Greek word that is used of everlasting life. The pains of hell are as eternal as the joys of heaven. The same word is used to describe them. Jude speaks in verse 7 of the vengeance of eternal fire. In verse 13, the blackness of darkness forever. We read in Revelation 20.10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm not going to expand on this now. I hope God willing tomorrow evening to speak on the pains of hell. Let us simply note at this point how fearsome this punishment will be. Just, terrible, and everlasting. John Calvin says, There can be no doubt but that by such expressions the Holy Spirit intended to confound all our faculties with horror. To confound all our faculties our minds, our emotions, our wills, everything to be confounded with horror. Thirdly, hell is for the devil, his angels, and the unsaved. Hell is for the devil, his angels, and the unsaved. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, commented flippantly and blasphemously that all the interesting people will be in hell. That's not what the Bible says. Christ speaks of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil, we're told, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The demons Cowered before Jesus of Nazareth. What have we to do with you? Did you come to destroy us? Mark 1.24 Luke 8.31 They begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. They knew the place for which they were destined. In Jude verse 6 we are told of the evil spirits who rebelled in heaven. That God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Hell is for the devil and for his angels. That is their place. It is also for the notoriously wicked. In Revelation 21 verse 8, we read that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. These are George Bernard Shaw's interesting people. The abominable murderers 
immoral idolaters and liars. These wicked people, these evil people, will be cast into hell. But hell is also for those who are outwardly moral and decent, upright and respectable, who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. Paul describes them in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He says that God will take vengeance in flaming fire. On whom? The Hitlers? The Stalins? Who are these people on whom God will take vengeance in flaming fire? What monsters of depravity are they? Paul says, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. Some of you tonight are refusing to obey the gospel. Simple as that. You say, that's all I've done. I've never done anything really bad. But you're not obeying the gospel. The gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not doing that. You're not obeying the gospel. The Bible says that God will take vengeance in flaming fire upon you if you never did another bad action as long as you lived, but if you didn't obey the gospel. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The only human beings who will escape hell are the elect, Christ's people. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Hell is for the devil, his angels, and the unsaved. Fourthly, hell is where the souls of the wicked go at death and where their bodies are rejoined with their souls at the last judgment. Hell is where the souls of the wicked go at death, and where the, their bodies are reunited with their souls at the last judgment. In other words, there is no neutral place in the universe between heaven and hell. There is no third state. There is no waiting room until the second coming of Christ. There is no such thing as soul sleep or a period of unconsciousness or, or oblivion. There is only this life, this world, and then heaven or hell. We know that when the believer dies, his or her soul goes immediately to be with Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it beautifully. The souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Christ said to the dying thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul wanted to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. That's what happens to the believer at death. And conversely, 
as the unbeliever dies, there is a gloating whisper from the devil today. You will be with me in hell. Those are the only two voices. You will be with Christ or you will be with Satan. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way. After death, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. I think some confusion has arisen in people's minds because the, the Old Testament word Sheol and the New Testament word Hades are used in Scripture with different meanings. Sometimes they refer to the grave to which we all go. Sometimes they refer to the place of punishment to which believers do not go. So sometimes you will see a statement in the Bible, I will go to Sheol. Sometimes you will see a statement, I will not go to Sheol. And that has confused people. And they said, what is this, this Sheol? Is it an intermediate state? But the words are being used in different senses there. And though the scripture has far more to say about the immediate destiny of believers, its teaching is quite plain regarding those who die without Christ, perhaps clearest of all in the Lord's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That is clearly referring to the intermediate state. The rich man has five brothers. They are still alive. They are on the earth. The end of the world has not come. The Lord has not returned. He has died, but his brothers have not died. They have still opportunity to repent and believe. And what are we told about this man who has died before the general resurrection? We're told in Luke 16:23, the rich man died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. His body was in the ground. His body was going into corruption. But his soul was in torments. I am tormented, they said, in this flame. Again, Second Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Literally in Greek, to keep the unrighteous continually being punished till the day of judgment. Even now they are being punished. There is no such place as purgatory. There is no second chance. There is no future hope. There is no point in praying for the dead. They are beyond our prayers. Our prayers cannot help them. We may say it reverently. Even Almighty God himself will not help them. That is the urgency of the gospel. That's why God says, believe today. For once you die, it's too late. You can't pay for masses to be said. You can't give all your possessions to bring your beloved out of some purgatory. They're lost. They're gone forever. 
and they await the, the general resurrection, the day of judgment, when our Lord returns. And when the souls and bodies of believers are reunited and pass into glory, and where the souls of wicked are reunited with their bodies and consigned to hell forever. And then fifthly and lastly in this section of our study, we can say that the Bible teaches that hell is ruled by God and exists for his glory. Hell is, first of all, ruled by God. Now, we need to stress that because there is a popular idea in people's minds that hell is somehow outside God's presence and God's reach and God's power. That it is some sort of garbage dump, some sort of repository for nuclear waste where God puts everyone in and seals it and buries it and puts it away and forgets about it. And they just govern their own affairs in that dreadful place of torment. It's a community beyond God's reach, people think. Perhaps John Milton is partly to blame for that. Some of you may know his great poem, Paradise Lost. And in that poem, he gives a great deal of attention to Satan, the chief angel. And here is what Satan says, according to Milton, the great Puritan that he was, as he is about to enter hell. The devil says, Here at least we shall be free. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. You see, that was Milton's understanding of Satan. Now, perhaps that is what Satan thought. Perhaps that is what he hoped for. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I may be wretched, but I'll be my own master. I may be miserable, but at least I'll have got away from God. Even John Gerstner, great theologian, writes in one of his works, Hell is where Satan rules. My friends, that is not true. Hell is where God rules, where God alone rules. It is not a demonic colony which has declared unilateral independence. This is a great point. This is spot on. Jesus says, fear him who has power to cast into hell. That is God, the ruler of hell. He's prepared the fires of hell. The everlasting torment, we're told in Revelation 14.10, is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What an awful and mysterious statement. We'll come back to it again tomorrow evening. The devil does not reign in hell. The devil suffers the worst punishment in hell. And there's a danger, you see, of making the devil into a sort of a James Dean type figure. A sort of a tragic, heroic rebel. The outsider. The man who, who stands by himself and shakes his fist at God. Let me quote Milton again. Here's Satan speaking. What though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will, 
the courage never to submit or yield. God's glory never shall his wrath and might extort from me to bow and sue for grace with suppliant knee and deify his power. That were an ignominy and shame beneath this downfall. Satan said, I'll never kneel to God. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Satan will be a whipped, crawling, cowering cur in hell. He'll not be a dark prince. He'll not be a majestic lord, magnificent in his evil. No, he'll be a contemptible thing. He'll be a worm. He'll be a miserable, pathetic object, cowering down before the mighty king and lord of all. God rules in hell as he rules in heaven. We will not take time to develop it, but hell is also for God's glory. I want to come back to that. Properly understood, it is not an embarrassment. It is not something we regret. It's not something we speak about in whispers. It's not something we're hesitant or reluctant about. In hell, and I say it, I trust reverently and tremblingly, in hell the glory of God will be unveiled in a new and amazing way. More of God's authority will be seen than has ever been seen before. God's holiness, God's justice, God's anger will be revealed in hell. And he will be glorified through hell. It's significant that the holy ones in the book of Revelation praise God for hell and thank him for hell. Isn't that a fearsome thought? Revelation eleven seventeen. the 24 elders, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. Thank you, Lord, for hell. Revelation 16, 5, the angel of the waters, you are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged these things and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Like everything else, hell exists for God's glory. So that's a brief, a very brief and inadequate outline of some of the major themes in the biblical doctrine of hell. But I would like, for the remainder of the time, to turn comparatively briefly to two problems with the biblical doctrine. And these are the result of mistaken thinking, but we're not talking about arrogance, we're not talking about unbelief, we're not talking about a weak evasion of scriptural truth, we're talking about genuine problems which godly people sometimes have. Issues with which they wrestle. 
which are a problem and a difficulty to them, and we want to try to help them with them if we can. The first one is this. Is hell not a punishment which is disproportionate to the offense? Is hell not a punishment which is disproportionate to the offense in its severity and its duration? Is it not a fearsome thing that human beings should be tormented so unbelievably, horribly, and dreadfully forever and forever and forever and forever? Even the best of us, even the most knowledgeable of us, from time to time may have wondered, is it just? Is it terrible? Is it, is it unfair that such an awful punishment forever should be inflicted on human beings? What can we say? Let us make several brief points. The first is that we have no concept of the horror and guilt of sin. Even the best, even the holiest, even the most godly of believers has little idea of what a foul and ghastly thing sin is. Charles Hodge says, We are incompetent judges of the penalty which sin deserves. We have no adequate apprehension of its inherent guilt, of the dignity of the person against whom it is committed, of the extent of the evil which it is capable of producing. A mortal being sets his or her will against the Creator. We arrogantly reject the authority of the God who made us. We refuse to fall down and worship. You see, the gravity of the offense depends on the dignity of the being which is injured by the offense. If we were to go out this evening and see a small child tramping on a worm or pulling a worm to pieces, well, we'd be, we'd be annoyed. We'd say, don't do that. That's a creature of God. Unless, of course, the worm was in an inconvenient place. But we would say, well, that's something you shouldn't do. Don't be cruel even to the insects. But we wouldn't be appalled by it. We wouldn't say, you evil, wicked little boy. How could you do such a dreadful thing? We wouldn't lie sleepless all night to think of that child torturing that worm. Now, if a child was torturing a cat, it would not be worse. Now, we would think that really was cruel. That, that was perverse. Because in our scale of, of understanding, a cat, we think, is a nobler animal than a worm. Or if it was torturing a human being, now that would, would, would shake us. That would fill us with horror. That is a truly dreadful thing. It's the same action in every case, but it's against a different creature, a different being. And it is that which gives it its guilt. To pull a worm in two is not as bad as pulling a human being in two. But what then must be an offense against God? Against God, who is so much above all other creatures, all creatures, for he's the creator, the uncreated. 
nor has the guilt of a sin any connection with its duration. You could murder someone in a second. It could take you ten years to defraud someone of their life's savings. One crime is committed in a second, the other crime takes ten years. Require a longer punishment? No. It bears no relationship. People say, why should I be tormented forever for a sin which only takes a few moments? That's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the guilt of the sin. People don't understand the heinousness of sin. Our society is numb with regard to sin. I wonder, do any of you smoke tobacco? I hope you don't. I think if you do, you're very foolish. You're injuring your body. You're breaking the sixth commandment. I'm not making a plea for the smoking of cigarettes. But isn't it strange? The persecuting mania which our society has against people who smoke tobacco. They're banned. They're banished. They're frowned on. They are the lepers of society. There are notices up. You could be put out of a restaurant. That is one of the worst things you could do to smoke tobacco. Abortion, fine. Perversion, fine. You name it. But don't you dare to light a cigarette in my presence. You see, people's values are all skewed. They don't know right and wrong. They don't know great evil and small evil. We're not in a position to say what's terribly bad. Only the Bible can help us. Hasn't it been interesting recently to hear people talking about capital punishment? People said, oh, I don't agree with capital punishment. Oh, no, it's cruel. It's terrible. To put another human being to death. And then after Oklahoma City, oh, that's a different thing. Such a crime as that. Such a heinous thing. All those lives taken away. The man who does that deserves punishment. Normally I don't agree with it. But when it's something really bad, then of course. But that's the point. Sin is really bad. Sin is the worst thing imaginable. That's why we cannot say that it's unfair. Or we remember again that those who are in hell continue to sin. They keep on sinning and incurring more guilt forever and forever and forever. In Revelation 22.11, we have the solemn statement, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. I owe many Deaths to you, Reformed Baptist friends. And one of the not inconsiderable debts I owe you is introducing me to the writings of John Ledley Dagg. And he's a manual of systematic theology. In today's world, it's a very unimpressive looking book. There is no bibliography. There are no learned footnotes. It just looks very simple and straightforward. But if you haven't got that book, get it and read it. Use it in your private devotions. He has a most marvelous, simple, warm, practical way 
of teaching us theology. Here's what Dag has to say. A sinner cannot become innocent by being confirmed in sin. The future condition of the wicked is chiefly terrible because they are abandoned by God to the full exercise and influence of their unholy passions and consequent accumulation of guilt forever and ever. In other words, in hell they become more guilty and more guilty and more guilty forever and forever and forever. And after millions and millions of ages, they have just accumulated more sin to be punished. They don't become innocent by being confirmed in sin. The cross of Christ shows us the seriousness of sin. Listen to Dag again. If wrath and damnation had been trivial things... The sending of God's only Son into the world, the laying of our sins upon him, and the whole expedient adopted to deliver us from these inconsiderable evils would have been unworthy of infinite wisdom. If sin is such a trivial thing, such a small matter, what a waste to shed the blood of God's only begotten Son to atone for it. Dag goes on. The power of God's anger, finite intelligence cannot conceive, but God understands it well, and a full estimate of it was regarded in the deep counsels which devised the scheme of salvation. William Shedd says, It is incredible that the eternal trinity should have submitted to such a stupendous self-sacrifice to remove a merely finite and temporal evil. And he goes on to make an exceedingly profound statement. The doctrine of Christ's vicarious atonement stands or falls with eternal punishment. If we lose this, he said, we lose the cross. Isn't that awesome? Would not be another reason that we could have thought of last night. If we lose hell, sooner or later, we lose the cross. But there's no point to the cross. Right on. Exactly. In fact, there's, I mean, what's the point? I mean, if Rob Bell's ideas are right regarding hell and, you know, love wins and, um, you know, eventually, you know, everybody in hell is eventually restored. You know, I mean, why not just sin like hell now? Sure, you'll have to pay for it for a little while, but eventually you'll be restored. Big deal. You don't need the cross then, right? That's salvation without the cross. No reason for it. Jesus didn't need to come and do all that. We stand or fall together. Hell is extreme, but that is because sin is extreme. Are we going to stand at the foot of the cross and tell God that hell is an inappropriate punishment? 
But then another question, a problem, is hell not contrary to the character of God? Is hell not contrary to the character of God? God okay, now this is an important question. This is the one that gets brought up all the time, you know, because if God is love, then isn't hell contrary to that concept? God is love. God delights in mercy. How then can a loving God bear to send some of his creatures to everlasting torment? That is one of John Stott's difficulties. How can a loving God bear to send some of his creatures to everlasting torment? Would you do it to a child? You who are human beings, would you send a child? Would you do it to a dog? Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't put a dog in the flames of hell forever. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. How can God do it? Isn't he a God of love? What can we say? Let me give several strands of argument to you. We'd want to say, first of all, that God's attributes do not oppose each other. They do not fight against each other. One does not override the others. They're not at war. There's not a battle between them. God is loving and he's merciful, but he's also holy. And he's also righteous of purer eyes than to behold evil. And all his attributes are exercised in the fullness of their perfection. And none of them can be cancelled. For that would mean that God was denying himself. And that is what he will never do. It is right for God to hate sin. You would agree with that. And it is right for him to hate sin with an infinite hatred. And that infinite hatred is good. We'd agree with that. It's good that he should hate sin. Well, if it is good, should it not be expressed? Is it not right for God to express what is good? He expresses his love. He expresses his holiness. He expresses his wrath. He expresses his justice. Are we going to question that? Are we going to say that God should stunt himself and cripple himself and give us a partial picture of his glory? Or again, we, should, we could ask, would indifference to sin be a virtue? Would indifference to sin be a virtue? Do we admire people who have no moral sense? When the citizens of a great nation are asked in a poll, do you believe that the rumors regarding the morality of a politician who is running for chief office in that nation, do you believe that those rumors have foundation? And over 70% of the citizens of that nation, whose identity you can probably guess, over 70% of the citizens say, yes, we do believe that those rumors have foundation and are probably true. And they're then asked, would that affect 
the way you vote in any way. And they say, not in the least. We believe the man has probably done these things. We believe the rumors are true. Nevertheless, we intend to give him our support. Is that a sign of health in a nation? It would be healthier if they believed the rumors were false. At least they'd be acting out of some conviction. Indifference to sin, is that a virtue? If someone was willing to be pally with a multiple unrepentant child murderer and say, well, I just like to be friendly with people. I like to get on with people. You know, I'm a good-natured sort of a person. Would you say, what a wonderful guy that is? Oh, what a big heart. What an admirable man. No, you wouldn't. You would say, where's his thinking gone? R.L. Dabney gives a powerful illustration from life of two people he knew. A woman, a godly, saintly woman, who trusted the Lord, who lived a life of holiness and love, who was plagued by pain and illness all her days and died in agony. And a wicked wretch, profligate, immoral, cruel, who had taken human life, who spent his days in health and happiness and was taken from this world suddenly, without an ache or pain. And Dabney says, let us suppose that these two persons, appearing so nearly at the same time in the presence of God, were together introduced to the same heaven. If this is God's justice, then he is more fearful than the prince of darkness himself. To believe that our everlasting destiny is in the hands of such unprincipled omnipotence is more horrible than to dwell on the crust of a volcano. What sort of God would he be? He would be the devil. He would be the devil. If God could look at sin and say, it doesn't matter, never worry, come into heaven, he would be the devil. Or again we could say, the objection tr proves too much. People say, how can a God of love inflict endless misery on his creatures? But we could equally ask, how can a God of love inflict any misery on his creatures? But he does. The world is full of misery and unhappiness. It's quite clear that God judges sin. He has done since the fall in Eden. One writer says his judgments are frequent enough to let us know he judges, but seldom enough to let us know that there must be judgment to come. Frequent enough to show us that he judges, seldom enough to point to a judgment to come. This argument would also mean that mercy is compulsory. Pastor Hendricks wouldn't need to preach to us on the grace of God because there wouldn't be any grace of God. If God is bound to forgive, if his love requires him to show mercy and to receive into heaven, then there is no grace 
then we're not indebted to him in any way at all. He is so controlled by his love that he cannot punish, that he must forgive, that the cross is a supreme irrelevance and nonsense, that redemption is not of grace, it is the fulfillment of obligation. You have to throw away your Bibles. If a God of love cannot send to hell, then what does John 3.16 mean? And of course, most of all, how can God be merciful and condemn to hell? But my friends, the truth is that there is mercy. There is mercy. In Christ, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, tell me this. How is it reasonable for people to hear of the love of God and be pleaded with to accept the love of God and turn their backs on the love of God and reject and refuse the love of God and then complain that God is not loving? He is loving, but they don't want his love. They spurn it, they despise it, they trample upon it. And then they have the sheer gall to criticize him, to stand at the foot of Calvary on which his only begotten son bled and died and say, Oh, I've got doubts about God's love. One of those theologians could speak of it last night as profoundly immoral. How, how can any man dare to say in the light of the cross of Christ that God is unloving? You remember those words that must have cut our Savior's soul that night in the boat on the, on the Sea of Galilee? Lord, do you not care that we perish? I wonder, did Jesus think to himself, oh, my friends, if you knew what your words mean, why am I here? No. God is the Father of our Savior. And to suggest in any way that the existence of hell is contrary to his love is blasphemy. I want to take a few minutes in closing to say just a, a word or two about the, the purpose of the biblical doctrine. We've looked at it in summary. We've considered one or two objections. Now then, what is its purpose? Why is it given in the Scripture? It is horrible. It's alarming. It's disturbing. It's frightening. Why has God put these very, very disturbing, awful statements in his word. Why does he upset us so? Let me suggest that that is not the key issue. Supposing tonight about 3 or 4 a.m., someone were to run down the corridor of the building where you're saying, staying, you're peacefully asleep, you're tired after a busy day, and suddenly someone runs down the corridor shouting, Fire! Fire! 
The building is in flames. Awake. Escape for your life. And you jump out of bed and you're sleepy and you bang your leg on the chair and it's sore. And the children are frightened and crying. You feel sick and you rush out into the corridor. That's a very upsetting uh, statement, isn't it? It's very disturbing and annoying. But what would be the reality? If there is no fire, that's a piece of irresponsible foolishness. But if there is a fire, that is an act of love and kindness. The issue is not the loud voice, the inconvenient hour, the frightening words, the upset to yourself and your children. The, the issue is this, is it true or is it false? And if it's true, then the louder and more upsetting it is, the better. And you see people criticize the Bible. All oh, this language, bloodthirsty, upsetting. You know, passages you couldn't read to children. They have nightmares. Why has God put all this into his word? That's not the issue. The issue is, is there a hell or is there not? And if there is, and there is, then surely this is an act of supreme kindness. Supposing the Bible had told us nothing of hell. Supposing it had satisfied the modernists and the liberals, and there wasn't a single word in this book about any condemnation to come. Would that be a loving thing? I was speaking to someone at lunch today who serves God working in the hospice movement. She was telling me that the whole ethos of the movement is don't alarm the dying. Don't cause them any anxiety or worry. Assure them that they're going to a better place. All will be well. Nothing to trouble them. Let them slip out of this world easily and comfortably. We want to be kind. We want to be caring. That's not kind. That's not caring. That's dreadfully, dreadfully cruel. And people, you see, complain that God warns us. But it's in his love he warns us. And it's in his grace he warns us. Because hell is a reality. And it's in love that we've chosen this topic for this conference, for those of you who are on your way to hell. This morning Jesus was described as the theologian of hell. And we sometimes overlook the point of that, we say, well, hell must be true, for Christ taught it. That's correct. We say, hell is not inconsistent with God's love, for Christ taught it. That's correct. But what is the chief point? The chief point is that he who tells us about hell is the one who can save us from hell. He who brings us the warning is the one who can help us. That's the beauty of it and the grace of it. What more could we ask? The very person whom God sends to warn us, he himself is the person who can deliver us. He brings the warning and the deliverance together. Some of you here today are unconverted. You've heard about hell. 
many times, and you're resisting the teaching. And I warn you now that if you continue in your unbelief, you will end up in that dreadful place. And those of us here who are Christians will witness against you the day of judgment. On Friday, my wife and I hope to be driving off on holiday for a few weeks, the courtesy of some of the friends here. And I'm driving, let's say, along the highway. I'm driving at 70 miles an hour. I won't be, but let's assume I were. <laughs> and a highway patrolman pulls me over and he says, Sir, the speed limit in this state is 65. You're breaking the law. And I would say, Well, I, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know. I wasn't aware. I'm a, I'm a visitor here. And he would say, Well, you should have known. It was your business to know. You could have found out. I'm going to have to find you. But he would be lenient, I think. I think he would be understanding. And if he had to give me a penalty, he would do it with a smile, I would hope, and a degree of graciousness. I didn't know. But supposing that same officer stops me again an hour later, and I'm still driving at 70 miles an hour, he's going to have a different attitude then. He says, sir, I spoke to you about this. I warned you. I explained the position. His whole attitude towards me is going to be changed. And many of you have heard of hell again and again and again and again. What will you say? What will you say, young people, when you stand before God? God says you were warned. You were told. You were urged to flee the wrath to come. But you trampled the Son of God under your foot. You insulted the Spirit of grace. You will be damned. And you will deserve to be. Flee the wrath to come. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for warning us so clearly, movingly, powerfully, and repeatedly. Thank you, Lord, for sending that warning chiefly through the Savior himself, who came full of grace and mercy and life. But the warning was brought to us by the one who delivers from it. Lord our God, thank you that Christ stands in our midst this evening by his Spirit and warns us each one again of hell and offers himself to be our Savior. Lord, if there is someone here now resisting you, fighting against you, longing for this meeting to be over, shuffling in their seat, trying to think of something else. Lord, break through their indifference. Terrify them. Overwhelm them, O God. Help them to realize that it is the voice of the Son of God who is truth, calling on them, warning them, 
and grant that by your mercy they may take heed and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sober words, but he's right. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, and our Savior, is the one in the Scriptures who is the theologian of hell. And it's his blood shed on the cross for our sins that saves us from the soon-to-be revealed wrath to come. Repent. Be forgiven. To go to hell is foolishness. Repent and trust in Christ, your great God and Savior who died on the cross for your sins and mine. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You know how to support us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click one. One of them allows you to sign up to contribute on a monthly basis, $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. The other one allows you to make a one-time contribution. And if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can do so by making your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 